The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I'm here today with Matt Spoke, uh, the CEO of Nuco. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well, Rich. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, let's dive right in. Tell me uh, what Nuco does, and then let's talk about your new initiative that you mentioned. Yeah, cool. So Nuco's, uh, we're, we're based in Toronto, Canada. Um, we're an enterprise blockchain company. We've been operating since kind of early 2016. Um, started the company after having built a blockchain team for Deloitte that I kicked off back in 2014 called Rubix. Um, really focused on, you know, what were the unique requirements of the enterprise market and how were those not being addressed by like the open source blockchain projects that were getting built. Um, so the the original kind of hypothesis behind Nuco was to build a purpose-built kind of enterprise infrastructure, loosely derivative off of the Ethereum protocol but starting to figure out that okay. there were some custom requirements um, that needed to be addressed that weren't being addressed by those open protocols. Okay, so can you go into a little bit more detail? You know, what's your project about? Just for people that maybe not be very familiar with it. Yeah, so let me start with Nuco, and then I'll kind of walk you through the evolution of how, how our, our tech has evolved and what the thinking is. Um, when we when yeah. we started talking to enterprise market um, type companies, so you know Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 type companies, banks and stock exchanges and healthcare providers, uh, we realized that there was a desire to use this technology, but to have a little bit more control over how it was being implemented. So within a particular industry, you might have kind of regulatory issues or concerns that you need to address, um, or you might have some specific requirements about how you transactions get processed or privacy requirements, things like that, that were not just out of the box, um, you know, default solutions that were available on any of the public networks. So we set out to build an infrastructure that could be customized for those types of companies. So when groups of companies would come together and build, you know, what, what we used to call private blockchains or enterprise blockchains, um, and really be able to optimize those designs. Where that led us was to a lot of really interesting projects. You know, some of the notable ones that we've been involved in include some work with uh, some government agencies around uh, digital identity creation, some Work at the Toronto Stock Exchange on natural gas. Um, all of these kind of driven by either government or enterprise type organizations. Um, but these individual blockchains that we were building kind of all suffered from the same problem that we we saw in the public blockchain space, that they were all disconnected and isolated from each other. And that in, unless we created a mechanism for blockchains to communicate, then you'd end up having this kind of problem of isolation where you'd have to you know incorporate new intermediaries to sit at the at the intersection of these blockchains to be able to kind of witness transactions and 
kind of pass those messages on. So um, recently, over the last uh, four to five months, we've been working on a project called Aon uh, to solve that that question of like blockchain interoperability with a particular focus on how do you bring the enterprise blockchains into a connected ecosystem with the public blockchains. Do these enterprise blockchains... I mean, need to connect to all other blockchains or just certain ones that are used by other enterprises? It, it's kind of case by case. I mean, our, our core hypothesis is that, you know, we've got a few hundred blockchains that are really operational in existence today, like on a meaningful scale, um, whether they're like private blockchains getting built within specific industries or public blockchains getting used um, by, you know, the average consumer. Um, and we're anticipating that that number is going to grow to thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of blockchains at some point in the next few years. So whether your blockchain needs to be con- connected to all other blockchains is debatable, but it, but I think it's pretty obvious that it's some point interoperability and a mechanism for interoperability is going to become pretty critical. So whether you're talking about blockchains that are built for specific industries, let's say uh, a payments blockchain backed by a fiat currency like the US dollar or the euro and having that connect into a blockchain that manages health records so that, you know, when a medical procedure takes place and an insurance policy is verified, a payment can be automatically issued to somebody's to somebody's wallet. Uh, so it's that kind of like, you know, broad applicability of use cases that we've been we've been focusing on that none of the no one blockchain seems to be able to solve really well. We've got these challenges of scalability and performance and potentially privacy requirements when you start dealing with really sensitive information. So we're working on the assumption and the hypothesis that these these um, these problems are going to be solved by building different blockchains. And then the, the scaling challenge beyond that is going to be how do you allow these blockchains? So the, the, the idea that a transaction on one blockchain could automatically or autonomously trigger a transaction on another blockchain without an intermediary having to exist is kind of the end goal that we're working towards. Well, what about certain blockchains? Because the way they're coded becoming bottlenecks? You know, part of our design, uh, you know, I'll, sp- I'll speak at a relatively high level uh, for people who are interested, you know, in, in understanding more of the details. We've published a pretty detailed amount of explanation and design on Aon uh, on our website. Um, but part of our design is, is based on this, you know, loosely, you can think of it as a concept of like a router. So in, in the context of blockchains talking to each other, there's been a couple of experimented solutions on how do two blockchains connect to each other. Uh, solutions like BTC Relay or, or, or Peace Relay that are really looking at how do two blockchains and stay aware of each other's state and have the ability to, to trigger transactions as a result of something that happened on another blockchain. Um, where the challenge became, you know, the challenge became obvious to us that we wanted to solve was that one blockchain connecting to one blockchain is an easy problem to solve. Uh, one blockchain being able to connect to thousands of others is more difficult. The, the scaling challenge became obvious. So we instituted a, a, a new blockchain that kind of acts as a router to the system, where if I can connect to that router and if that router acts efficiently, that router can recognize when transactions are taking place on my blockchain, it can signal to the blockchain, to the relevant blockchain that something has happened. Um, so it's essentially creating an intermediary between chains, but the intermediary is a blockchain itself. So it decentralizes that process. How many major flavors or types of blockchains are there out there? Uh, you know, it's probably nobody really knows. I mean, I can list off the top the top protocols that are being developed in, in, in the public. There's obviously some custom work being done that, that probably hasn't been released, but you've got public networks like Ethereum and, and EOS and Bitcoin and Tezos, and then you've got enterprise enterprise um, initiatives like Hyperledger and R3 and the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Um, so, you know, just among those, you're seeing an enormous amount of variation in terms of how these protocols are built. None of them are natively designed to talk to each other. What's what's kind of core to our, our design with Aon is that the, this concept of heterogeneous blockchains or non, you know, non-similar blockchains being able to communicate with each other is, is pretty core because the way we're seeing adoption pick up is that it's not going to be one protocol that kind of wins out at the end of the day. It's going to be a, a, a series of different protocols. And then the, the solution that's able to stitch 
them all together, considering that they're different, is going to be the solution that wins out. I guess there'll be many different types of implementations, but they'll be pruned away and there'll be a few winners and then you won't have to deal with so many after a time, right? Absolutely. Yeah, my, my thought has always been that over time, we're going to see a, a shrinking number of protocols and a growing number of applications. But that protocol uh, debate, I'd say, is not is not over. And I don't think we'll be over for, for a while. I think there's still some really core infrastructure work that needs to be done. We still have challenges on most of the major blockchain protocols around performance and scalability, challenges around privacy, et cetera. So the idea that people are still developing new protocols is only a positive thing at this point because they're, they're experimenting with new ideas. So whether these are blockchains getting built specifically for like uh, small IoT sensory devices or mobile phones or whatever, there's blockchains getting built with a whole bunch of new characteristics. And and for the time being, it's a, it's a good kind of sequence of global experiments and we can kind of pick um, best practices from all of these networks. But to the extent that any of them gain any meaningful adoption and traction, uh, then we still want an ability for them to kind of intercommunicate or interoperate. Yeah, I mean, networks have been around for a long time. So databases, what, what have you learned? What are some lessons from you know, the existing infrastructure and how it communicates or doesn't communicate that you could use in your projects. Yeah, it's a, it's a good analogy. I mean, whether you're looking at databases or, um, you know, the topology of the of the modern internet, you can look at things like, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of different architectures available in modern databases, all of which kind of solve slightly different problems uh, in slightly different ways. And, and you know, there hasn't been an, an, there hasn't been one database structure that has kind of won out across, across the entire, um, across the entire world. So there's been this general understanding that multiple solutions is okay. Um, in, in networking, you know, you look at the modern internet and in reality, it, it is a sequence or a series of different networks that all seem to be able to speak to each other over a common protocol or a common language. So TCP IP kind of connects all of these various networks. And, and you know, from a user's perspective, it looks like one giant network, but in reality, you're looking at a, a, a stack of networks that just communicate with each other relatively efficiently. So whether these are private intranets inside companies or, you know, protected VPN uh, networks or, you know, different G geographies having their own kind of versions of the internet and having the ability to kind of cross communicate between the Chinese internet and the North American internet. These are different networks that just look like the same network to a user. So you don't think it's impossible to do what you want to do? And I mean, how long do you think it'll take and how much effort so it kind of depends on on what level of, of adoption we're what what type of adoption we're talking about in in the public blockchain ecosystem. I think there's a need for this almost immediately. Uh, there's already starting to be a lot of friction, a lot of scaling challenges on on any one blockchain. So people are building new blockchains to solve that. But now that the new challenge is going to be this 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 concept of isolation and this heavy reliance on intermediaries between blockchains, whether they be exchanges or other types of intermediaries. So to connect public blockchains is already becoming pretty critical. We see some pretty high profile projects being released that are being built or you know positioned either as alternatives to Ethereum or or, or Bitcoin or others uh, projects like EOS and Tezos and, and others. Uh, so the ability to be able to have communication between those protocols in a decentralized way, I think, is, is important and will be very you know immediately uh, relevant in the enterprise space. What we're what we're really banking on is the fact that a lot of the mainstream adoption we're waiting for is going to come from large organizations shifting their infrastructure to this. Uh, that's where we're going to see you know the mass consumer market move because those consumers, from our perspective, are going to follow their service providers and their, their, you know, the companies that they already rely on today. So whether those are banks or insurance companies or, or healthcare providers or governments, that the fact that they're starting in a, in a very, very heavy way with, a, with enormous investments in some cases to build blockchain solutions, that only reaches its end potential when those blockchains can communicate with other blockchains. That might be a few years out, but it's, uh, it's something that we think is pretty critically important if we ever want this to achieve its end, end potential. Well, tell me about some of your government work. What were those projects like? What were they about? What were the governments interested in? What did they want to have happen? 
So we've had a couple of involvements with different government agencies. Um, right now, we're in the midst of, of, a, of a project uh, focused on digital identity. Um, this, you know, being a solution essentially to tie physical issuance of identity to digital issuances of identity. Um, and the fact that in most countries, your identity is kind of a fragmented series of, of kind of attributes issued to you by different types of government agencies. If you think about like your driver's license and, your, and in some countries, uh, the concept of a health card or social security number, all of these pieces of your identity, your passport, they're all issued to you from kind of various different agencies or departments of your government. So you have this fragmented system of many, many databases kind of managed separately, and you don't have one seamless way of connecting all of that. So that's a pretty critically important use case that we've been focused on for the last few months. Uh, we've also been doing some some work in Canada where we have a much more uh, government-backed healthcare system than in some other parts of the world. Definitely, you know, more so than in the U.S., where you know our government insurer is essentially our, um, or sorry, our healthcare insurer is essentially our government. Um, and in that context, we're talking about networks of hospitals that want to have a more efficient way of maintaining one version of health records such that they can always be kind of up to date on, on the state of a patient's health uh, and make sure that they're all looking at the same version of the truth. So we've been doing some work in that context around how do you share and contribute to health records of different patients. Um, we're involved in a project around the issuance of a fiat-based currency by a government. Uh, so there's a whole bunch that, you know, there's a, a long list of use cases that governments are really interested in. Um, we're, we're particularly interested in how those over overlap with the non-government issued use cases. So uh, we've been doing some work in, in commodity settlement, work with the Toronto Stock Exchange on um, the settlement and trading of natural gas. And very imminently, we're starting to imagine that natural gas settlements have to clear in dollars, whether those are US dollars or euros or Canadian dollars. So you're going to have this kind of trigger function that happens from one blockchain, you know, a natural gas commodity settlement blockchain to another blockchain that might be managing kind of a dollar or euro ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, building those, the ability for transactions to get, to get triggered across those two different networks is something that we're pretty focused on. Oh, interesting. In regards to the ID, you know, you were talking about, right, your information's in different databases and you're still issued like paper IDs, a physical license, a physical birth certificate, a physical passport. And, you know, how do you see that all going digital? How do you see this working once your, your systems are running? So I, you know, realistically, we don't anticipate that the papers, the paper and the cards are going anywhere anytime soon. We, we, we look at digital identity for now as being kind of an augmentation. So if you want to be able to interact online and have some sort of validation of who you are um, from an authorized source to give people confidence when you're transacting on e-commerce websites or whatever the case might be, you know, imagine it as a digital equivalence to your passport or driver's license or, or whatever would allow people to have confidence in, in your identity online. Um, for the time being, we're trying to figure out out how that ties into the issuance of a physical card so that your physical card could point to your digital card and your digital card re in reverse could point to your physical card in some way. Um, so this is not a solution that we anticipate is going to eliminate the need for kind of paper-based or card-based identities, but really more of an augmentation for people as they transact online because there's still an enormous um, enormous instances of fraud when you're, when you're transacting with people online and hopefully this can help solve some of that. Yeah, and that's probably okay. Yeah, definitely. Are there use cases that you're working on or you find like fascinating that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, you you don't have to go very far in the enterprise domain to, to realize that the use cases of a um, a system where count where different counterparties in a transaction could come to agreement on what is the the state of that agreement. 
um, is pretty important across any industry for any type of data, whether that's uh, health data or transactional data or supply chain data or government issued data. It doesn't really matter. We're just looking for instances where our, there are a large number of organizations who are in some way involved in the same process. And today they rely on, you know, rely potentially too heavily on paper processes and intermediaries to keep, you know, uh, trust in the system, to keep some sort of integrity in the system. And, you know, we've, we've been involved in projects across the board, whether you're looking at government, pharmaceutical, supply chains, finance, um, and others, you know, energy grids. Um, it, it really is a technology that we fundamentally believe is going to be impactful to pretty much any industry and in any geography. So when we look at use cases, we start, we sort of stepped back and said, let's stop looking at use cases as if they were within a certain industry. Let's look at use cases as they traverse industries. And if they, if they traverse industries, then they might have to traverse blockchains. Because if I get an, if I get a, a blockchain built for uh, my domestic, you know, banking network and then a different blockchain built for my domestic insurance network and a different blockchain built for my domestic healthcare network, I might have transactions triggered on all of those blockchains that need to communicate with each other. You know, and, and this is the simple example we've been using is, you know, the scenario where a medical procedure occurs and uh, an insurance policy is verified and a payment is issued. And those things might happen on two or three different blockchains, but should be able to happen autonomously. So it's use cases like that that really excite us rather than just looking at private blockchains as a way to do like simple process automation, because in that context, we're really only looking at like a very, very low hanging fruit. And these are not very transformative ideas, um, but they just happen to be where people are starting most of their experimentation. What about the token part of a lot of blockchains? Is that going to cause any difficulty in them interrupting if the tokens have different functionalities? No, not at all. I mean, you know, it, the the concept of Aon is uh, an interoperability system that that allows for non-similar blockchains to talk to each other. Whether that's so, when we say transactions on a blockchain, we're not exclusively talking about the movement of a token. We're talking about kind of any state change or any update of information on that blockchain. So on one blockchain, the state change could simply be me changing my address on my driver's license, and on another blockchain, it might be the movement of a token. Um, if those things can recognize each other and trigger each other, then we're we're doing well. Um, the the concept that we have behind a token is that you need to incentivize actors in the system to validate and secure this concept of a network of many blockchains. So we do that with with uh, with the Aon design, it's kind of three major functional architectural components. And one is a new blockchain we're building called Aon One. It's a, it, it, you know, primarily acts as, well, two major functions. You can build applications on Aon One, um, applications that have the ability to be interchain applications. So where parts of their logic can come from different blockchains. Um, and then the other function of Aon One is to is to be a router to the blockchains connected to it. Blockchains can connect to Aon One with a protocol where we've designed called the bridge. And the bridge is a decentralized protocol. It's essentially a group of nodes that sit um, at the intersection of two blockchains, witnessing transactions on one side of the bridge and transmitting them to the other side of the bridge. And then the third part of the architecture is is the participating blockchain, the blockchain that's connecting to the bridge on the other side. Um, really core part of our design that we spent a lot of time thinking about was how do we allow participating blockchains to be as custom as they need to be. Whether they're built using existing protocols or future protocols, we want to make sure that that ability to pass transactions and data and value is not restricted only based on is the tra is the blockchain um, a common protocol across the board. So we don't need them all to match the Ethereum protocol or match the Bitcoin protocol or match any other protocol. They can all be built kind of custom and still have the ability to do that, that function. It seems like the... Um the nodes between the blockchains would be attacked or could be attacked or blockchains could be spoofed and then could put data into the network in you know, a whole bunch of places all at once and cause problems and corrupt things. How would that be addressed? 
So, you know, where you where you're trusting the network is kind of up to the the recipient of the transaction. So, you know, there's nothing about this network that that forces on a recipient to trust the blockchain that a transaction is coming from. So to the extent that you've got secure, trusted blockchains um, that are transmitting data between one another, uh, then all of us, then you, already you've kind of solved problem number one. If somebody could build a very centralized blockchain, plug it into this ecosystem, and the reality is that nobody would trust it. So you would never have interchange transactions kind of getting accepted from that blockchain. Um, the bridge is is a you know super high level. Is, 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 is The concept is a group of nodes. Uh, the larger the group of nodes, the better. There's a kind of a free market system behind these bridges. The bridges are built based on a staking function. You use tokens on the connecting network on Aeon 1 to, to create these bridges. And then once you're on the bridge as a node, you, you can earn tokens on the bridge. So there's kind of an economic model behind being a validator on that bridge. Uh, the, the intention behind that is to, is to create an incentive for more and more nodes to join the bridge. So at some point, the bridge becomes its own little micro network, the network that sits between two bigger networks. Um, there's a consensus process so that all these nodes on the bridge essentially have to witness a transaction, sign that they've agreed with its validity and then transmit that signature. And then as, as long as the bridge achieves the right threshold of, of signatures, then it accepts the transaction as valid. Um, that's kind of the, the design, the core design of the bridge. And it, also the bridge acts as a um, as a kind of an update to the main network. So the main network being Aon 1 has a, a registry of these bridges and the bridge registry essentially tracks the current state of the blockchain it's connecting to. And it, and it does that by capturing the root hash at any moment in time. So the nodes on that bridge are essentially transmitting messages and updating the root hash at any given point so that somebody independently could go verify that the transaction they've just received, in fact, is is part of that root hash that's, that's registered on the on the public connecting blockchain Aon 1. Yeah, I guess I would just worry if information gets um, into the network and a change is made or information is updated that you don't want to have changed it might be hard to undo it or it passed to so many different blockchains at once that the information would be spread widely very quickly. So I, you know, I'd have to understand a little bit more about like a specific example of what you're talking about. But here's here's the concept that we have behind an interchain transaction, just for simplicity. An interchain transaction has, as part of its transaction format, essentially a recipient, uh, a um, a destination address and a destination network. So you're signaling to the router that I want my transaction to get witnessed by this other blockchain because that blockchain has some uh, some reason to know that this, this transaction just took place. Uh, in, in that context, the two blockchains in question are aware of each other. They, talk, they, they, they trust each other. They often accept transactions from each other. So, you know, if you think of like a commodity settlement system and like a, a, a fiat-based currency system or an ether-based currency system, whatever the case is, uh, and you need these two things to settle across each other. So me as the transaction author, I put in not only my transaction, but I also put in kind of a destination network that needs to be aware of this transaction. The bridge picks up on that and and transmits that message into the into the Aon One routing network. The routing network then knows which blockchain it's intended for, and then passes the message along to the next bridge, which passes it into the network that it was intended for, the destination network. So in that way, I mean, I'm intentionally signaling to the, the to the network that I want somebody else to see my transaction. That transaction is as secure as the blockchain it came from. So of course, if that's a very centralized, non-secure blockchain, you've got issues, and people just would not tra trust transactions coming from it. But as it gets transmitted through the system, if it's coming from, from a, a trusted source uh, and the trusted source being like how decentralized and how secure is the blockchain it came from, and if it's getting picked up and added to a block in the connecting blockchain with which in and of itself is going to become a very decentralized trusted source and then gets transmitted across, there's several steps that can be verified to make sure that nothing has changed in the transaction throughout its, uh, throughout its kind of routing process. And I guess in terms of speed, there'll be well-trodden paths 
that will be trusted and they'll be quick over time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the concept of bridges is that there's kind of a free market around around building bridges. So if you imagine two blockchains connecting to each other, I might build a bridge. Um, I might stake some tokens on that bridge. I might set a really, really high fee if you want to cross my bridge um, and and nobody else might join my bridge. So it's a one node centralized bridge and it's super expensive. Um, you know, somebody else in the ecosystem is going to be very incentivized to create another bridge with lower fees that has more nodes, you know, more decentralized, more efficient uh, and cheaper. And then all of a sudden the, the, the traffic will kind of go where there's the most confidence and where there's the lowest fees. And then the market will kind of develop in that way. So you have these like, you know, you'll have bridges that you can cross that are more high throughput. You'll have other bridges that you can cross that are more expensive and less trustworthy. That makes sense. You know, it's funny as your last name is Spoke. You can call these spokes, I guess, in terms of bridges, but uh, it's literally in your name to uh, work on a project like this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we loosely refer to the to the architecture as kind of like a hub and spoke architecture, um, not to be kind of not to be arrogant with my name, but it's just a term a term that comes up a lot uh, that that it, it very much looks like a hub and spoke architecture where you have like a hub network connecting all these spoke networks. Um, yeah, but that's more of a coincidence than anything. No, I just noticed it's it's fitting. So, so what's on your roadmap for the next six months or a year? What big things are coming out? Uh, just let us know. Uh, so primarily on the roadmap is is kind of implementing everything that I just I mentioned to you. So we're we're, we're over the course of the next uh, four months or so to get from now until the end of 2017, we've got a couple of big releases coming. Uh, one is so like I like I mentioned, we've got three major architectural components. Um, so the the Aon One blockchain, which acts as kind of the router, the bridge protocol, and then um, a structure to create your own participating blockchain. Um, so that structure to create your own participating blockchain with you know mod components for designing your own blockchain with its own characteristics is something that we've been building over the last year and a half um, that we're releasing kind of in a, in a, uh, a usable version at uh, some point some point in September, likely close to the end of September. That'll be followed pretty closely by some early implementations of our bridge protocol. Bridge protocol connecting um, two or more uh, private blockchains and also a bridge protocol connecting the Aon1 network to the Ethereum network. And then finally, before the end of 2017, we'll be releasing the first implementation test network of, of Aon1 one. Um, and then, so that's kind of phase one of our development is it takes us to the end of this year. So we'll have a kind of a functional ecosystem that has Aon One as a routing network, uh, the bridge protocol published for people to be able to build their own bridges. And we'll have built a few experimental bridges and then the ability for you to spin up your own blockchain or connect an existing blockchain through a bridge. Uh, beyond that, we move into phase two and phase three over the course of the following kind of 18 months to two years. And those are really focused on maturing the design of the virtual machine and the consensus algorithm that functions on our, on our Aon One block blockchain so that we can achieve the scale and performance that we need over time. Well, very good. So how can listeners find out more about Nuco and interact with you? So uh, a couple of ways we've got um, we've we've been publishing some of our of our research. We we've got a white paper executive summary available online. We'd love for people to kind of read it and give us their thoughts. We're going to be um, releasing pretty soon kind of a community channel for people to get involved and have kind of an open conversation with us to get their feedback. Uh, you can check out most of what we've done on Aon.network. Um, you can learn more about Nuco at Nuco.io. Um, you know, get it, get active on our newsletter. Um, join us on on Twitter. Uh, there's there's tons of different ways to get involved and follow us uh, and we'd love to hear from you well great man well thank you so much i appreciate you being on the podcast yeah thank you rich the bitcoin ethereum and blockchain super conference is coming to dallas texas february 16 17 and 18 in 2018 if you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto to hear directly from the top minds in this field 
to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.